When it comes to climate change, we're not all in it together. From America to Bangladesh, women and young girls are at the forefront of climate science and activism. Welcome to Afterwards. I'm Angad Singh Chowdhury, co-founder of Quilt.ai, talking today with Anne Karpf, an award-winning journalist, sociologist, and professor of life, writing, and culture at London Metropolitan University. In her book, How Women Can Save the Planet, Karpf interviews female activists from around the world, looking at feminist research and innovative climate policies introduced by women to explore how gender equality can help solve the climate crisis. The result is a powerful vision of the future, a vision she calls a Green New Deal for women. In today's show, we will be discussing how our gendered perceptions of nature influence our understanding of the climate crisis. So welcome to the show, Anne. It's so nice to finally connect. Thank you very much, Ankad. So I want to start with the idea of the metaphor. And one of the things that you've done in your book is walk the reader through how the metaphor of we in the context of the climate crisis is possibly misleading and that there is no collective we, but there are distributions of who are, in quotation marks, victims of extreme weather events. Could you explain that to people who might not be sociologists or anthropologists in the audience, how metaphors structure reality? Yes, of course. So I think we've all heard this, particularly during COVID, but also very much around the climate crisis, this idea that we're all in it together. And that's something I call the climate we. And it's a very comforting, reassuring idea in a way, although it's about catastrophe. It's as if catastrophe and disaster are very egalitarian and they strike everyone to an equal extent and in the same way. And it's utterly misleading. It's misleading because we know that, first of all, the global south has already been affected in devastating ways that the global north is only just beginning to wake up to. And that within the global south, particular groups are most affected. So we're talking in particular about poor women of colour. And it's also misleading because it doesn't differentiate between who is responsible for the climate crisis. And we know, absolutely, without exception, that it's us in the global north who have produced the carbon emissions that are having these terrible consequences already and have been for a long time in the global south. And so what the climate we, we're all in it together, or what David Attenborough says is we have destroyed the planet, what that does is it obscures the reality It's like it's an ideological term. It conceals who is responsible and who is largely feeling the effects. And that's why I wanted to unpick that so much in the book. And how does that help in actions going forward? How does putting the responsibility on one set of individuals impact decisions going forward? forward, according to you? Well, first of all, I don't think that we should put responsibility on a set of individuals. It's very much collectively. And what we see again and again 
in discussion and debate around the climate crisis is this push to individualise it. And in particular, when we're talking in the global north, onto women. Uh, this has been called by feminist climate scholars the feminization of responsibility. So this idea that you need to shop better, you need to recycle more, women can single-handedly turn this around with better purchases. Now, this is not about consumption. We can only... I mean, obviously, we all need to consume differently. Above all, we need to consume far, far less. But we can only consume what's already been produced. And the responsibility lies with the fossil fuel companies. I mean, they are the ones that are producing the emissions. And we need to be very clear about who the climate guilty are before we can start developing solutions. So on the one hand, we have the climate guilty, which is the fossil fuel companies. On the other hand, we have the victims, which are global south, poor women of colour. This doesn't seem like a fair fight. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. It's not a fair fight. But I need to take issue with the characterization of women of colour in the global south as victims. As one climate scholar put it, women are made vulnerable by social, political and economic conditions. Because I think there's a real danger in characterising women as either victims or potential saviours. And neither of these is right. So what we're talking about is how women's agency and the agency, particularly of poor people of colour in the Global South, has been curtailed by those in the Global North. So I mean, you are starting from a complete disequilibrium. You're starting with very powerful forces in the global north, primarily, and people who have been made their victims in the global south. And you can understand why people feel a sense of helplessness at these kind of mega transnational forces. Now, I'm not normally an optimist, but I do see that there are all kinds of solutions that are possible on every level to begin to tackle this. But it's true that what's needed is change on a very fundamental level. What's almost amusing, would be comic were it not so tragic, is the way that when you bring up these solutions, you're often told, oh, but that's unrealistic, as if... The path we're on at the moment, which, if we continue down this path, would undeniably, incontestably lead us to catastrophe, as if that's realism, that's the yardstick of realism. It's a complete Alice in Wonderland scenario, because the path we're on at the moment is totally unrealistic. We simply cannot tinker at the edges. We need profound international change. And every single piece of research from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, from the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, everybody agrees that the kind of fundamental changes that are needed, you know, there really is no discussion there. There are certain solutions proposed by the Global North, 
that do this, and especially to fossil fuels, such as electrification of vehicles and electric vehicles in general. So the solutions seem to also be emerging from the global north. What is your take on that? Well, these are a lot of false solutions because they are designed, their aim is to allow the global north to continue its affluence and its lifestyle with the minimum change and alteration. So let's take electric vehicles. Of course, on the one hand, they're not using gas uh, petrol. But where do they come from? Their batteries use lithium and cobalt. You don't find that in North London, I have to say. It's not a natural resource from where I live. It is mined from largely countries in South America, countries like Bolivia and Ecuador, And the mining has devastating impact on the local water level, on the environment, on the labour that mines it. Then electric vehicles need to be charged, the batteries, with electricity. Where does that come from? And then at the other end, those batteries are cheaper to produce than to recycle. So they become what's known as e-waste, electronic waste. And they're sent far away from people in the global north. We don't see what happens to them. We feel virtuous if we recycle them. And they end up in countries like India and China, where the poorest lower caste women disassemble them with really serious effects on their health, or they get discarded and burned. And so the idea that electric cars are some kind of panacea, and it's the same with things like solar panels. I mean, all these things are relatively better than what we've got at the moment, but they don't tackle the fundamental issues. And that is where we need to address our efforts. And what are the fundamental issues, if not (laughs) solution-seeking? Well, we need solutions, but those solutions can't be technological fixes. And a lot of the kind of net zero solutions that are put forward are based on either existing technologies or very often on yet-to-be-invented technologies. I mean, there's an extraordinary faith in the future and not much faith in the present because we don't have those technologies. So... What do we need to do? Well, the first thing we need to do is to reduce our need for energy and reduce our need for fossil fuels and to reduce our consumption. And we also need to obviously increase our use of renewables. But there are lots of exciting things happening, both in the global north and in the global south, which are looking at ways of tackling this. Let me give you a couple of examples. One from India, from Gujarat, where you have floods and monsoons followed by droughts, which make a lot of land really unavailable for agriculture. So there has been a new waste management system designed called the Bungaroo. This is, you know, complex, but actually quite simple also. And Groups of women, in each group, five women of the poorest lower caste women, Dalit women, have been trained how to install and maintain this equipment. 
And the effects have been far-reaching, first of all from the point of view of the climate crisis, because it's brought a lot of hitherto unused land available for agriculture. But those women, I mean, it's interesting, um, in India, I think it's 43% of the agricultural labour force are women, but women own only 4% of the land, they don't have land ownership. So these bungroos, first of all, led to the women being given local irrigation rights, and that has then led to them having ownership rights, and that has then so emboldened them and given them confidence that they're entering the arena of local politics and their social status has risen enormously. Now, That's a great example, but I just, I, th- because you said something quite interesting a few minutes ago and then we went into this story, which I want to return to, but we were talking about solutions and you said there are three areas where we need to intervene. One is the space of renewables, One is reducing our need for energy and fossil fuels. And the third is reduction of our consumption. The present example that you're giving us for our readers fits into which of those three categories? Well, that is a solution because there are lots of other things. Those three categories are just the beginning. What the example I gave you tells us that technology on its own doesn't work, but there was a piece of technology designed to combat not just the climate crisis, but also gender inequality. It was designed to embed itself in the social relations in that area and to transform them. You know, we hear a lot of people talk about empower this, empower that, but really it has empowered those women. And so This is the idea that technology alone is not sufficient. Yes, there will be technologies, whether very sophisticated technologies or less sophisticated ones. But unless you think about the social setting that they take place, and this is part of the problem we've had with environmental debates and climate debate, it's been conceived of as a scientific and technological problem, rather than as a social, political and economic problem. It is the relationship and the disequilibrium, both between the North and the South, between brown and black people and white people, between men and women, between the able-bodied and people with disabilities, all those intersectional inequalities that have helped produce this crisis. And if we conceive of it purely in scientific and technological terms, we miss those aspects and we come up with more of the same of solutions that just reinforce that inequality. I hear you. And, you know, then let's take the one uh, reduction of consumption, which is not technological. I was looking at some of the pushbacks that uh, the reduction of consumption narrative has had from emerging economies such as India. And their perspective is that it's our turn to consume now. It's our turn to grow now. Why should we put the brakes on our own habits when the first world in the West has already uh, had the benefits and the pleasure of unbridled consumption and growth? What would you say to folks who believe that? I would totally agree with them. It's totally wrong for people who have got all their, relatively speaking, globally luxurious lifestyle in place to turn around and say, oh no, we're shutting the door 
you can't do that. So the answer to that, and, and there have been a lot of discussion about this for many years, there's a British climate activist and commentator who years ago designed something called Contract and Converge. The idea was that the rich economies of the world need to contract enormously and the poor economies of the world need to be able to grow so that we meet somewhere that enables the development in the poor economies in the global south and where it's our turn to make sacrifices now, relatively speaking. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, there was something very provocative there. A contraction of an economy has impacts on people who are not necessarily responsible. Everyone, the collective we in the United Kingdom is not responsible for climate change and contracting the UK economy is going to be pretty disastrous even for geopolitical reasons. Uh, Can you just help us understand what contracting the economy means? We've got to unpick that further because you're absolutely right. I mean, what's happening at the moment is the British economy is contracting. And who are the ones who are feeling it? It's poor people, those on benefits, those who are unemployed, old people, people with disabilities. It's not the wealthy people. I mean, that contract and converge on its own is not at all possible. What we need is an absolute redistribution of wealth. And there are two factors here that we need to think about. One is the idea of the commons. What is the commons? The commons are those shared resources that are so important to making life work well for us, whether it's parks, schools, healthcare, the things we share And what we've seen in countries like the UK really for a long time now is private wealth accumulating in really criminal ways and the impoverishment of the public domain. And as the writer Georges Monbiot said, we should have public luxury and private austerity and not the other way around. And so what we've seen is the cutback of all the social services that are vital to sustain life. Now, there there are a couple of other things here. One is the idea of degrowth, which, I mean, there are a lot of debates now about the way we have fetishized economic growth and the idea that, you know, of trickle-down economics, that basically... If the economy grows, um, the effects will be felt pretty much equally by everyone. And we know this is a complete nonsense because we know how the disparities, the difference between the rich and the poor in the UK has grown enormously. We are being fed a lot of nonsense about the economy in the UK. Public spending is always an analogy is made between public spending and private spending. And it's an entirely false analogy because the government basically produces money. So the government can, in theory, spend as much as it wants and where it wants to. Now, obviously, if you take that to extremes, you have what you had in in Weimar and you have a crazy economy out of control and inflation out of control. We've seen that in other countries. But if you ask people what they value, and particularly since what the pandemic revealed about 
what is important in in society and suddenly what had hitherto been invisible the importance of care both formal and informal suddenly became very apparent and those low paid frontline jobs if you ask people what is important the national health service is so highly valued all those support systems people value those and it so it depends how you ask people and how you frame it if people feel that their taxes are going to mean that they can access their doctor their general practitioner within a few hours or a day rather than waiting 3 weeks for an appointment if that means increasing public finances that if they need a hip replacement they don't have to wait 18 months in pain if that those public finances mean that there are local support services for parents with preschool children for example we see again and again that people support that they support public ownership there's been a lot of work done that shows that people actually don't want basic resources and utilities like water companies being there for profit because what you end up with is what we have in the uk at the moment water companies who are discharging the most horrible stuff into rivers and the environment agency that's meant to oversee that has been so starved of funds that they can get away with it and there's a lot of public appetite for that i think it depends how you sell it to people you had a lovely phrase which was luxury in public and austerity in private and i think what you just spoke to reflects that very well where public bodies and uh, public health services are more accessible and are more efficient and far more valuable experiences than they are right now and we flip the model where one person hoards a lot of wealth and has access to the best resources into where everyone is a steer and everyone is living in the same way but the public facilities they have access to is Uh, luxurious is that the right that's, reading of what you said that's exactly right and if you take the example of transport can you imagine if public transport was free and prolific you know whether you lived in a city or indeed in a rural area if there was absolutely plentiful public transport that was you know you knew you could catch a bus or a train within 5 minutes and it was free who would go to the trouble and expense of having their own car and the impact on the quality of the air the use of natural resources would be remarkable so we need to flip over and take radical solutions and there's a gender aspect to that because women are much less likely certainly in the global north to own a car and to drive a car and women when they do drive a car you do multiple trips in the same journey because they're ferrying people around so our cities are have been taken over by the private car and the sociologist richard senet said by making over so much land in cities to car parking we have essentially privatized public space without any discussion about it because it's not for cars it's for 
wealthier people have cars or, you know, obviously other people who, who that's the only way they can get to work. So we've done something without actually having a discussion about whether this is the way we should be running our cities. So if we introduce something like that, and, you know, all around the world, they're now trialling free public transport. So it's an idea that is definitely going to come, I think. Let's move on to some of the other parts of your book, which is, you know, the idea which you alluded to earlier of women as climate saviors and women being romanticized as innately empathetic and nurturing. Uh, how has this shaped the present conversation about the climate so far and climate change so far? How is the stereotype being challenged? And are there any differences between the North and the South on this narrative? Yeah, this comes up so much when you have discussions about the climate, this idealization of women as somehow having some innate connection, you know, as earth mothers and even the idea of Mother Earth. Now, I should say that in indigenous cultures, there is a very different relationship to the earth and to the natural world. And indigenous women, really, we have a lot to learn from them. And they do have an idea of the earth as female, of Mother Earth. But you can't simply transpose that to the global north without all the other supportive structures there. What we know, though, is that there's a lot of very robust research that shows that when you have more women in government and in parliament, those countries are more likely to ratify environmental treaties and those countries have lower carbon footprints. And the reason is not because of this innate sensitivity towards the earth. The reason is that women are the ones who, on the whole, pick up the pieces after disaster. And we know, again, from other studies, that women are more sensitive to risk than men and try to avoid risk. They're less likely to be risk takers. And again, it's because... If a cyclone hits you or you are displaced into a, an emergency shelter, you're the one who's going to have to find a way to cook for the family, if that is your responsibility, which it mostly is for women, or to gather the firewood or gather the water or look after the elders or look after the children. So you are facing the consequences. And so that's one of the reasons why women are less likely to take risks. But I really don't like the idealization of women because we're not talking about sex here. We're talking about gender. And gender are those social roles that we are raised in. And there are many different roles. There's not one kind of masculinity. There are masculinities. And, you know, there are many men, I mean, I live with one, who are very attuned to nature, are very careful about their consumption. And there are many women who aren't. So, I mean, this isn't a binary thing. It depends on the version of masculinity. A few minutes ago, you said that women are the ones who pick up the pieces when disaster hits. What does everyone else do? What do you think are the responsibilities of the other genders in that situation? Well, what we know is that when disasters, extreme weather events 
hit, like cyclones, floods, droughts. And we know that these are more frequent and more intense as a result of the climate crisis. They may not have been caused originally by it, but they've definitely intensified and occur more often. When those things happen, for a lot of men whose sense of self and sense of masculinity is bound up with the idea of protecting family and property, when they are not able to do this, the sense of frustration and anger is turned outwards into violence. And this phenomenon of climate violence, we're looking at very traditional gender roles and how when people are under pressure of the climate crisis, the climate crisis has been called a threat multiplier. It exacerbates existing inequalities. But I, I, there's something, if I, if I may, Anghad, that I want to bring up, because I think this is one of the most exciting and important aspects of the climate crisis and gender. And that is about the role of care. I've been talking about how in COVID, what became apparent and what became manifest was how important both informal care within the family was, but also those carers in hospitals, those frontline staff in supermarkets and people who drive lorries and all those other jobs that on the whole are low status and low paid. And there's a a fantastic British group called the Women's Budget Group, who are a group of feminist economists. And they worked out that for each pound of state money, of gross domestic product, invested in care jobs, each pound produced almost three times as many jobs. And those jobs were 30% less polluting. And they said, Care jobs are green jobs. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean to say the whole economy can be care. But if you base the economy and put care at its heart rather than as an add-on, you start to have a very different perspective. And, And they have this wonderful line, which I love, which is people need time to care And time away from care, because anyone who's cared for somebody will know how, on the one hand, how rewarding and fulfilling it can be, but also how incredibly draining it is. Well, we've had time away from care for the planet for a long time. Well, that's very well put. Yeah. So I think if we start to put those different things at the heart of our economy, a lot of the areas that are problematic sort themselves out. And when the status of care changes, what we find is more men start to do it. I mean, it was evident in Britain that when the status of teaching went up, more men entered the teaching profession. When the status of nursing went up, more men entered nursing. When the status of nursery teachers is beginning to go up, more men are attracted to it. And of course, the pay goes up as well. It's sad that it should be so, but that is the reality of it. Then what we start to do is to degender care. Care ceases just to be women's responsibility and it becomes everyone's responsibility. And we have that as the foundation of our economy. And then the decisions we make start to be very different. 
They're not based on profit. They're based on human need. And I think that the momentum is growing and it's going to snowball and it's going to ultimately be irresistible. Thank you to Anne Karp for taking part in this episode. You can buy How Women Can Save the Planet Now from Hearst Publishers website. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers and Quilt.ai at QuiltAI underscore on Twitter. And to get news on the latest Hearst books, subscribe to the email updates at HearstPublishers.com. I'm Angad Singh Chowdhury. Thank you for listening and follow me on Twitter at Angad Singh.